RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Simple Contacts. To save $30 off your contact lens order, just go to simplecontacts.com slash missionlog or enter the code missionlog at checkout. This episode is also sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shinjo for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 276, The Passenger. Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. Or did I? What? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I step in having heard nothing, delivering a dramatic, though non-sequitur line at the wrong moment? Hmm. Well, if drama's what you were trying to do, then yes, you did it wrong. In that case, I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek. Then, we talk about an episode of Star Trek. The messages, the morals, the meanings. Trying to see whether a particular tale holds up today. This week, The Passenger. The one where Bashir is full of himself, while his head is full of someone else. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, a word from Simple Contacts. If you wear contact lenses and find yourself dreading the annual appointment to renew your prescription, then you should know about Simple Contacts, a new company that makes this annoying process, well, simple. Simple Contacts lets you renew your expired contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from your phone or computer in minutes. Simple Contacts brings the doctor's office to wherever you are whenever you need it. See, the internet makes everything better. You can take the Simple Contacts vision test online in five minutes. A real doctor reviews it and renews your prescription. You save time, you save money, and you save yourself a huge headache. And if you have an unexpired prescription, just upload a photo of it or your doctor's info and order your lenses in minutes for a great price. They do all the hard work for you. This is vision care for the 21st century. Now, an app is not a replacement for your periodic full health exam for your eyes, right? You'll want to keep having those. But between those, Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses at amazing prices. Prescription is 20 bucks, which is way better than the $250 that you might have to spend on an annual appointment. And they have some of the best prices on the contacts themselves. Plus, they all come with free shipping. Oh, oh, but the prices are even better for Mission Log listeners. Yes, they are, because you can get $30 off your first Simple Contacts order. So to save $30 on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com slash missionlog or enter the code missionlog at checkout. At Simple Contacts, they focus 
on being the most convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. I see what you did there. It was very clever. Do you mm-hmm. like what I did there, though? That's the real I, question. I like because, it. Go be, everybody rewind 10 seconds. Because yeah. I see what you did saying you see what I did about mm. focusing. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, enough about us. Let's keep talking about simple contacts. <laughs> Get $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash mission log. That URL again, simplecontacts.com slash mission log. Or just enter the code mission log at checkout to save those 30 bucks. And a big thanks to Simple Contacts for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment. And I know what you're thinking. Really? Trivia? This week? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it was a week with seven days, so we figured why not keep going. <laughs> uh, first, though, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I'm sorry if I sounded a little distracted while I was doing that, but I went back to check my calendar. There were, in fact, seven days this past week, and that Mm. does mean it is time for trivia. Good, good. All right. Well... At least I'm prepared. So, trivia for The Passenger. This episode was written by Morgan Gendel. Now, there's a name that is well-known to Star Trek fans, even though he has only a handful of story credits in the franchise. Just two in Next Gen, Starship Mine, and of course, the iconic, The Inner Light. And this is the first of just two shows he has credited for Deep Space Nine. Now, the teleplay is by Morgan Gendel, Robert Hewitt-Wolf, and Michael Piller, So in that collaboration, we have Morgan along with Michael, who we all know as a producer and creator of DS9. And remember that Robert was the writer of A Fistful of Datas and brought over to be a part of the staff at Deep Space Nine. He previously wrote Q-less. This episode was directed by Paul Lynch. You know, we're only a handful of episodes into Deep Space Nine, and here we have so many credits for Paul Lynch who is doing way more work than most TV directors do in rapid succession. Uh, A Man Alone, Babel, Q-less, and now this one, and he's got just one more coming up. Uh, Interestingly, Alexander Siddig dubbed his own voice in this episode. So uh, the story goes that he was doing a voice when he is possessed in this episode, and uh, it just didn't quite turn out quite the way they wanted it. So they had him go back in and redub it with kind of a different sound, less of an accent than he was doing. So some of those shots, you may go, hey, this seems like some weird looping. Is that another actor? No, it is him. He's just dubbing his own voice where he had previously been doing an accent that simply did not work. Uh, interesting bits for this episode, things that we learn. Uh, a humanoid only uses a small portion of the brain. Still not true. Um, yeah, that is something that the doctor just throws out there and uh, uh, tries to justify why a brain could be possessed by the consciousness of another being. And uh, that's not a thing, uh, in, even though it is a, a popular opinion. Uh, if we only use a small percentage of our brains, well, you could just go right out there and get brain damaged and, and be just fine. Hey, we have a shout out to Rigel7. Um, Ken, do you remember Rigel7 from The Cage? Yeah, well, of course I do. 
Yeah, yeah. So, Rigel 7, of course, uh, at the beginning of the episode, Pike is lamenting what happened on Rigel 7, how they lost some crew members. And then uh, he ends up back there in the simulation created by the Telosians. What do you remember about the look of Rigel 7? Um, well, sort of Flash Gordon-y, if memory serves. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like a big, or maybe more like um, like the... Uh, the Vallejo paintings of John Carter of Mars. Something oh, right. those lines. Yeah. yeah. So big, big old castle and you've got Vina wearing this like yeah. princess outfit. And then, uh, the, you know, the bad guy has got like a sword and, and they discuss the armor and all this. He says that to, uh, uh, the doctor in the beginning. So it's kind of weird that, uh, Vantica would wipe out their computers. <laughs> Uh, because in the cage, they were definitely a pre-technological right. society. Um, and, and I, I wanted to break it to you all gently that way, because it, it might be an indication that within the Star Trek franchise, uh, uh, we're seeing an imperfect use of their own internal uh, canon and history. I know. I know it's hard to uh, hard to grasp. It's possible. It is possible. Although maybe when she said wipe out their computers, what she meant was broke their abacus. Could be. Could very well be. Possible, yeah. because it has been like 100 years. They might have advanced, you know, a little sure. bit. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not all the way to computers, unless somebody dropped one off with them. Could be. Could be. Now, uh, get out your freeze frame. When the mercenaries beam over to the Norkova, there is a 23rd century phaser in one hand. And it looks to me a little more like the Star Trek III phaser, which I really liked. Uh, it's not exactly TOS, or maybe it's kind of a cross between the two. Uh, it's a little bit blurry in the shot, but you can definitely make out the shape of that classic phaser. And uh, one of those other weapons we've seen before, too, that kind of double-handed weapon used by the guy on the far left. Speaking of the Norkova, uh, not much to report there. It's uh, just kind of a common name in Russia. Uh, uh, but one interesting thing about the crew there is that they're wearing uniforms that we first saw on the miners who were picked up from Herod 4 in the next-gen episode, The Perfect Mate. And, uh, oh, here's a little more science. Uh, glial cells. Yes, there are six different types in the human body. They're uh, spread out through your central and peripheral nervous systems. And uh, they aren't neurons, but rather provide support for your neurons, uh, like fighting off pathogens or uh, offering protection. So, so that's what they do. They're a real thing. And uh, if you find that you're possessed by uh, an alien who's uh, trying to take over a ship, well, you know, check out your glial cells. All right, this week, we're going to do our regular cast spotlight on Armin Shimmerman. Now, Armin is a character actor of many talents and many faces, and of course, he is best known for playing Quark. And you may recall that he is the Ur-Ferengi. He uh, played Litek in the last outpost in Next Gen's first season. We saw him again as Damon Bactor in peak performance, and then he starts to show up as Quark. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you going to talk about the fact that he played, uh, he played a box on TNG? Uh, I, I left that out. Wasn't he a box? I can't, it was he, like a box or like some kind of panel or something. It, for some reason in my head, it's tied to the Waxana. He's a, he's, you know what? He's not a, a head in a floating balloon. Yeah. Uh, in a floating globe. But no, he's a head in a box. And yeah. look, uh, of all the actors who get to play a head in a box, 
Armin's great. Okay, I feel like you're making it more grisly. I mean, you're making it more like Seven, and this was less that. It was more like a talking <laughs> box with a face, wasn't it? Yes, and as of now, we have spent entirely too much time discussing an episode that I purposely left out of the trivia. Pretty sure we have spent more time talking about his time as that box than he actually spent on screen as that box. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we've seen him as Quark. In Next Gen and on Deep Space Nine, and we will see him again on Voyager. Um, and, you know, that change in characterization and popularity of the Ferengi, no doubt, owes something to playing to Armin's strengths as an actor. You may recall, Ken, that uh, the Ferengi that we met in the last outpost, quite a bit different from the Ferengi that we know now. They were close to feral. Mm-hmm. Very yep. different people by the time we get here. Or yes. beings, whatever you want to say. Not to be, you know, I don't want to be all peopleist. Beings, let's say. <laughs> they could still be people, just not human people. That's that's okay. They're Ferengi people. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, worth pointing out that Star Trek isn't the only place that loves Armin. Uh, in his wildly varied resume, he's often picked up for David E. Kelly's shows. He's appeared variously on Ally McBeal, Boston Legal, Boston Public, and The Practice. And... Look, let's not forget another very long run and very prominent role for Armin as Principal Snyder on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now let's talk guest stars. Julie Caitlin Brown plays Ty Kajada, and we've met her before. Uh, this is her first Trek appearance, technically, and it is very early in her own professional career. But we did first talk about her in Next Gen's Gambit Parts 1 and 2, she has solid sci-fi cred in her resume. She's best known probably for the role of Natoth in Babylon 5. And finally, James Lashley plays Lieutenant Primen. James is making return to Trek as well. We saw him very early on as an ensign in the next-gen episode, Brothers. And he's got a lot of sci-fi on his resume. Uh, Hard Time on Planet Earth, Twilight Zone, Howard the Duck, Wild Wild West, the movie, not the TV series. And not to be confused with the great Cannonball run by the late great Hal Needham, James was in Cannonball in 1976, this one starring David Carradine, also about that famous coast-to-coast -coast auto race. Uh, this one had significantly less Dom DeLuise. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned off the fasten seatbelt sign. Please enjoy your time with the passenger. Prologue. On the way back from a mission, Bashir is graciously accepting Kira's compliment by aggrandizing himself. We're mercifully interrupted by a distress signal from a Kobliad transport ship, terrible system failures all around, and the two beam aboard to find a woman in pretty bad shape. She says the pilot is dead, but Bashir picks up another faint life sign— the woman warns him not to help the other one. He's a dangerous prisoner she was transporting, and he caused the fire that disabled them. Bashir goes ahead into the brig, though, to find the body of a man on the floor. Seems like he's about to shuffle off this mortal coil, but before he does, he grasps Bashir and menacingly grunts, Make. Me. Live. Then he croaks. Act 1. Safely aboard DS9, the rescued woman Tai Kajada is conscious again, and she is very worried about the state of her prisoner, Rayo Vantika. 
Bashir says he's dead, but she wants to make sure, really sure. He was a brilliant scientist, but his obsession with life prolongation twisted him. He was ordered to all kinds of terrible things, like repeated murders, and he even faked his own death before to elude authorities. Kajada wants an autopsy just to be sure. In the bar, Quark has his eye on Dax, Odo has his eye on Quark as always, and a new guy, Starfleet no less, Lieutenant Primen, has an eye on Odo. They're all interested in a shipment of duridium coming from the Gamma Quadrant, and Primen has been dispatched by Starfleet Security to lend a hand on station security anyway. Odo is pretty sure he's got this, but he's willing to have Primen drop by for a meeting, purely as a formality. That duridium is important to the Kobliad because it's the key to their life extension, and duridium is super rare. Starfleet's been trying to help, but there's just not enough to go around. Vantica was probably on his way to DS9 to hijack the shipment, and that's where Primen comes in, very concerned that Odo was shooting his mouth off to Quark and everyone else in the bar about that duridium. Sisko is quick to put him in his place, though. Security on DS9 is not like security on a starship, and furthermore, he could learn a thing or two from Odo. Primen tucks his tail between his legs and apologizes to Odo, offering a hand to help. Odo assures him that no detail has been overlooked, but, famous last words, just as he looks at his computer, literally nothing from the station is available. All active memory has been wiped out. Impossible, you might say? Not so to Kajada, who tells the two security officers that Vantica did the same thing on Rigel 7 years ago. Act 2. Vantica might be dead, but Kajada is insisting that this is his M.O. He's done it before, and he's at work somehow, even though the others are all pretty sure he's dead. She says he would use a subspace shunt, something connected to an unimportant system like heating, cooling, replicators, something that would go unnoticed and can be used to access the computer. Aha! Uh -huh. And there it is an unauthorized computer link in a heating control panel. This is all a little hard to believe, but in Cisco's opinion, they have no way to proceed except under the assumption that Vantica is alive. Then Odo drops a bomb on Cisco. He's resigning. It's not what Cisco wants to hear. He likes the work that Odo does, and he's got to understand that Starfleet wants some security presence on DS9 too. Okay, but... Who's in charge? Odo is. Fair enough. And with that, the resignation is off. Dax completed a sweep of Kajada's ship. Nothing out of the ordinary to report there, but apparently someone did try to break into the cargo bay while it's been parked at DS9. What were they trying to steal? Well, Dax found something else interesting in Vantica's quarters. A computer chip containing a map of the humanoid brain. In the bar, Quark and his crew are cleaning up. He dispatches them, and when he's alone, a shadowy figure grabs Quark from behind, by the neck, and says they had a deal. Quark was to hire mercenaries to help secure the Duridium, but he thought Vantica was dead. Almost, but not quite, says the shadowy figure. Act 3 Bashir has the autopsy results back, along with DNA confirmation from Starfleet. That body they brought on board was definitely Vantica, 
and he is definitely dead. Kajada is still suspicious, but she'll have to wait because Dax has something new to show the doctor. She's been working on that chip she found. Multiple simulations of ways to store consciousness into another brain. Sort of downloading the patterns of one person and uploading it to another. To share someone's noggin, possibly without them knowing. This is what Vantica is working on. Even better, he's probably hiding in Kajada. They're both Kobliad, and he could be doing it unnoticed. She'll have to be watched. Only, they'll have to do it in a way she doesn't notice. She notices. She's been locked out of computers on DS9. She's no longer privy to the details of the Deridium shipment. She is not happy about any of this. But what can she do about it? Sneak around is what she can do about it. Quark meets up with his hired goons in his bar, but on the floor above, there's Kajada. She's listening in while Quark tells the others that Vantica will probably just show up when he's ready. They're interrupted, though, when Kajada is suddenly struggling to hold on to the railing on the floor above them, then falls, landing hard. She does not seem okay. Act 4. She's okay. I mean, she'll be okay. She says she was pushed, but the doctor is going to keep her unconscious for now so she doesn't move and accidentally paralyze herself. Dax has been examining Vantica's body, and she's got an idea. Vantica likely would have needed a way to inject the electronically coded copy of his brain scan into someone or something before he died as a precautionary measure. There were no hyposprays, so maybe use a fingernail. Yep, Dax found a microgenerator. And now that she knows what she's looking for, she can scan Kajada for any signs that there's an encoded message in her glial cells causing her brain to act under Vantica's will. Got it? Kira's techno-babbling about security, which leads her and Odo to wonder where Primin is, since he hasn't been seen bothering anyone in a while. Quark, meanwhile, is leading his hired goons to meet, well, we don't know who yet. He says his employer left a message to meet them all at the runabout, and we assume it's Vantica's consciousness pulling someone's strings. Oh, it's Dr. Bashir. But he's not Dr. Bashir because the smarmy charm is replaced with something evil. Act 5. Lieutenant Primen has been messing around with some of the overlooked redundant systems of the station, which is right where Odo catches him. It's not what he was asked to do, but it's a good thing he did. Right there on a waste reclamation system was another subspace crossover relay. Had it been activated, Vantica's plan would have shut down DS9 for about an hour while he or whomever made away with Deridium. Right on the schedule that nobody knew, the freighter Norkova comes through the wormhole with all that sweet, sweet deridium. Sisko orders that she be docked at their second backup, Bay 12, and security is dispatched. Just one thing, though. The runabout Rio Grande has already launched to intercept, and the authorization code to do so was Dr. Bashir's. The mercenaries beam over to the Narkova and take out the bridge crew in a firefight. This paves the way for Vantica in Bashir's body to beam over and take control. All is going to his plan, except DS9 locks on a tractor beam, something that would not have been able to do if that subspace shunt hadn't been found. Now he opens a channel, 
Vantico will consider leaving Bashir's body if Cisco releases the tractor beam. If he doesn't, Vantico will take his ship to warp, which will destroy the Narkova and everyone on board. He gives Cisco one minute to decide. They can't let the ship explode, killing Bashir and dumping deridium all over the system. Dax has an idea, though. She's got essentially a copy of the electromagnetic energy in Vantica's brain, so she could send an EM pulse along the tractor beam and uh, zap it out of Bashir. They'll need time. So Cisco tries to stall. It's not working on Vantica, though. He shoots one of his crew who refuses to take the Narkova to warp. Out of time, Vantica proceeds to the warp controls himself, and just in time, Dax is able to send the EM pulse along the tractor beam. It works, bringing Dr. Bashir back to consciousness, though unaware of what's going on. He lowers the shields to the Narkova, but Vantica seems to be putting up a fight from within. When they beam him back over to DS9, Cisco shoots him with a phaser on stun just for good measure. Or maybe for fun. In the infirmary, Dax has set up a transporter to move any glial cells with patterns from Vantica out of Bashir's nervous system and into a containment device that sort of looks like a very technologically advanced coaster. Call it a space coaster, if you will. The procedure works, and Bashir is back to himself, save for a headache. The coaster with Vantica's neural patterns sits by, and Kajada apologizes for all the trouble. With the prisoner returned to her, she takes out her weapon and destroys it, and what's left of Vantica for good. The end. Well done. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about a pet peeve that we both have, because as we've told people many times before, we don't read each other's notes. Nope. Until right before the show starts. What was amazing is we both had the same thing. And this is something that has happened on TV for as long as you and I have been watching TV. Mm -hmm. It must have just been particularly bad in this episode because we've seen it in Star Trek before. Oh, yeah. Here's my pet peeve. When characters come in and offer a perfect line to a conversation, but they hadn't been part of the conversation, they hadn't even been in the room. And yet they come in and just deliver the zinger line. So Odo says, that's impossible. And Kajada says, oh, it's possible. And I just want Odo or the security guy to be like, were you just like standing there waiting for the, were you like <laughs> lingering outside waiting for the right moment? Or, yeah. or were you just going to say, oh, it's possible, you know, like, just as you came in and like, you know, wait, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? All right, Bob. <laughs> exactly. And yet it always seems to work out. Somehow it always seems to work out on TV. You just do that. I'm going to the gym later. I might mm -hmm. just try it. I might just walk in and go, yeah, but you're not considering the whole picture. Yeah, no, that's good. That, that's a perfect one. Yeah, it's not bad, really, because mm -hmm, that actually mm -hmm. might work in any conversation. Maybe. Eh, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah, boy, that, that was a really egregious one, because Odo, again, like, he's got those big glass doors. We assume those got replaced <laughs> after a man alone. Right. And, um, and it, now, granted, they were open, but still, he could just point and say, like, this, this is security office. Right. This is secure. Right. Please just don't eavesdrop. In fairness, two security guys talking about security plans with an open door. I, I Yeah, I know. But I, there's a good amount of distance there still. Maybe she's got them bugged. She is also a security person. Let us not forget. Maybe she's got them bugged. Maybe that's what Odo should have spent. Should have been like the last 15 minutes of the conversation. He should have spent the rest of the episode just like tearing up his office. <laughs> looking for a bug. I like it. A bit of technology we learned here that tricorders are accurate with a living person. 
but not so much with a dead one. Mm. Now everything I've ever thought about tricorders goes right out the window. I think we should refer to them now as the Miracle Max because they're not good. I mean, they're great with a living person. They're not good with a dead person, but apparently they're okay with a mostly dead. Yeah, or you would true the mostly dead, or literally anything else. Like you point a tricorder at a rock, it's like, yeah, that's a rock, and here's what it's made of, and that's a tree, and that's what that's made of, and it can tell you anything. Right. But distinguishing life and death? Not so much. Just not, yeah, not so good. Um, and uh, by the way, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I feel like we need to address this uh, stuff with Bashir, because that opening scene with Bashir, it was entertaining for about a second, but then you just go, wow, he is so clueless about what he sounds like, and just going on and on with the self-aggrandizement. And I feel like we need to address this here. Uh, we know, at least one of us knows. Oh, no, I won't we know. say which one. We know. We know? Both of us? We know. Well, okay, I assume here. you're talking about you. I know, and I don't know that you know what I know. Although, oh, maybe, okay, you're, the, maybe you're letting everybody know that I know that they know that we know. Oh, that's so Odo of you. It's, and it's, so Cisco of you it's, it's fairly at the same Odo time. And fairly Cisco, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we both know that character changes and some character explanations are coming for, for Bashir. And, and we get the messages say, oh, but, but you wait for five seasons from now. <laughs> uh, a lot of people keep saying that online. And, yeah. and I, I, I want to remind people that part of what we do on Mission Log, even, even back to the TOS days, cause like I knew TOS a little better than you can and Ken, you knew TNG a little better than I did. And, yeah. and part of the game here is that uh, what we like to do is we like to take the shows in the order that they were delivered. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the neat thing is that we get to watch it fresh. And we get to go, okay, the, the writer wrote this episode and wrote this character this way in this moment in 1993. And here's what they did. And that writer wasn't thinking, you know, I bet in five years <laughs> we could, we could do a thing. You know, that's, that's certainly not the way TV was written in 1993. You know, you, you might do that now on a on a series where you've got a long a long plan you yeah. may well do that now of course the other thing you would do now is you'd actually go up on stage and tell everybody listen you're going to see some stuff don't worry about it because it's going to be fine yeah. like three seasons <laughs> right. from now this is actually right. a thing that writers do at this point which i don't under, i don't whatever man whatever hey i'm not yeah. a writer i you know i i'm a, I'm a rewriter yeah <laughs> i play i well i play a rewriter on a podcast i don't know if you've heard it. it's called mission log tell your friends exactly uh, here's a question yeah. Speaking of security, as we were a moment ago, and as we will throughout this episode, actually, mm-hmm. uh, should the computer really be reading aloud Bashir's authorization access code? Because remember, they're like, they're like, hey, uh, who who authorized this ship to go? And they're like, oh, authorization four one two one by Doctor Julian Bashir. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, they, well, somebody better remind him to change that when he gets back. <laughs> also, in case he hasn't, four one two one. If you're looking to seal a ship or some of DS 9s you know, hard to get pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that. Jot that down because it makes it handy. Very helpful. Yeah, um, man. How about uh, how about Odo's ego in this episode? How do you feel? I, I like. I get that he would be uh, bristling at the idea of Mister Starfleet coming in and saying, "Hey, let's work together. I'm I'm here to do this thing." And and Odo's been doing his thing on that station for a long, long time. And he likes his old rules and, and he, he bumps heads a little bit with Cisco, but you can tell there's the respect between him and Cisco. Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised that, that he would jump right to the resignation thing that early. 
Well, it doesn't feel that early to me. He knows he's been cut out a couple of times. He knows the guy was being uh, condescending to him, even though Bremen did come to him and say, hey, no hard feelings. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, you know, he doesn't necessarily know that what he's saying is, is on the up and up. It reminded me, honestly, of on TV. And I don't know about real life because I haven't dealt with, uh, I haven't worked with law enforcement. But it reminded me how on TV, you know, you've got the sheriff and then, you know, the FBI comes in. Right. Yeah. And they're usually fairly condescending to the sheriff right. on TV. And of course, the sheriff ends up, it, it really, it actually played out the way that often plays out. Either it goes poorly as it did in Die Hard, or it goes well as it does on most TV drama. And, yeah. you know, this time it actually, it seemed to go pretty well. Um, speaking of, wow, what about, hey, mm-hmm. look at Quark finally being the villain that everybody treats him like. I'm actually, I was like, yeah. it was, it was, it was refreshing, honestly. I know that sounds weird because I know we're supposed to like Quark because he's going to be around for a while. We've already gotten the sense that, yeah, he's, 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 he's a bit of a rogue, but he's not, you know, terrible, except in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it was interesting to see him actually play out the mistrust um, that everybody's been treating him with at this point. Yeah. It, it left me a little bit uneasy it, it kind of crossed a, b- a bit of a line with me and and, and again you know I, I i know that we're again to our listeners we're in the early stages here there's mm-hmm. a lot more to come with quark get that um but just in what we have seen so far of the portrayal of quark and the change in the portrayal of the Ferengi since they were introduced in uh in tng uh they went from the feral animals to just sort of like Kind of bumbling, kind of mischievous, uh, easily outwitted, <laughs> you know, uh, the, these characters you just sort of have to keep an eye on because they're up to something. But this was dark. Vantica kills people. Yes. Um, uh, easily kills people. And now Quark is set up to hire mercenaries. And and Quark has set himself up in a way so that he can kind of wash his hands up and say, well, I'm not actually the one doing the job. I'm just sort of making the deal. But it's dark. And and yes, it does justify the mistrust that people have of him. Um, which, which I think is why I like it. I don't like it. Like yeah. I don't want Quark to be this dark, but I really have not liked the way everybody treats him like something they stepped in, right? Because nothing, yeah, we've yeah, seen yeah. nothing. We've seen nothing that indicates he's actually a bad guy. And so now we're seven episodes in and we see something that indicates that he has the potential to be a really bad guy. And yeah. I'm sort of like, well, okay, Odo, keep being how you're being. I get it. Right. <laughs> That's fine. Keep, keep treating well, him like something terrible because what he did today was actually something terrible. Well, we've, we've allowed him this sort of, uh, you know, the, the acceptable bit of roguery. Like, oh, okay, well, he, he can skim a little off the top and he can kind of uh, cheat his customers a little bit. And he's just, you know, he, he's making that iced Roctogino and, uh, and he's the only one who's got the Roctogino machine. No, Cork, everybody has one. It's called a replicator. Well, if you want crap Roctogino, then yes, you go to a replicator. If you want the good oh, Roctogino, sure, sure. you go to Quark's. Again, I'm saying scan that pattern once. You got it forever and ever. Um, but yeah, and here's the other thing about Quark. His life was threatened. And I would think at that point, Odo's will to survive 
would overtake everything else that's going on and and he would sort of uh put his hands up and, and say uh guys you know because he's sort of in cahoots with odo as I'm well sorry, hold they on share... you, mean, you mean quark's will to survive Yes. Yeah. I, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Quark, Quark's will to survive. Okay. Uh, that I, I would think that he would uh, sort of put up his hands to Odo and say, uh, hey, look, I, I know that you know what I know. And this has been sort of a game that we're playing. But now somebody tried to kill me. So do your security thing. Yeah. The problem is, though, then he has to admit to dealing with the devil. Which, yeah, you know, so sure. far he's been able to walk around and go, what? I'm just running a business. I'm a, I'm a pillar of the community. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. So the second he holds up his hand... And says, you know, this guy threatened to kill me. Why? Well, funny story mm-hmm. <clears throat> that you might not find funny. Yeah, just this one time. Just this one time. Everything else on the up and up, but just this one time. Yeah. Um, Dr. Bashir says to some unnamed character in the infirmary, lift with your back straight and use the anti-gravity generator. Um, I'm just going to jump ahead here. I'm going to use the anti-gravity generator for everything all the time. <laughs> Think about it. Moving furniture, uh, uh, luggage on your way to the airport, uh, a yeah. bowl of cereal to the couch. Honey, I have to go to the bathroom. Where is the anti-gravity generator? <laughs> right, right. It's I don't want to throw my back out. there. Exactly. I pick myself <laughs> up off the couch. Oh, uh, could, could just float it over here. <laughs> Hey, as long as we're doing, uh, as long as we're doing, you know, uh, weird moments in acting, uh, it was really good of the third guy on the bridge of the Nerkova or whatever that ship was called. It was really good of him to stand perfectly still so that they could shoot him good and dead. Yes. That was really oh, great. Yeah. He came in, he sort of crouched down like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to think about it for like five seconds, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And he just got knocked out. So it was really a, he, he was a team player. I'm not sure he knew which team he was supposed to be playing for, but way to go you. Yes, yeah, Space Crew 101. Uh, Katra, we have a shout out to a Katra, not by name though, mm-hmm. but uh, Bashir talks about the, the Vulcan ability to sort of uh, print out a, uh, a consciousness on top of somebody else's brain. So kind of kind of nice to see that bit of in-universe discussion. And by the way, did you notice that we got a, a command from Cisco, Dax, do it, an emphatic do it. Might we have a new Captain catchphrase here? Captain Catchphrase is my Captain Beefheart cover band. It's almost that time of the show where we will dig deep into the passenger, but first... But first! But first, a word from Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. They are officially authorized by CBS Studios. It's the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection, available only from Eagle Moss Collections. This special edition features brand new ship concepts and design from the first season of CBS's Star Trek Discovery. Each has gone through extensive reference study and has been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson for accuracy and detail. Now, the first thing you'll notice is these ships are bigger. The USS Shenzhou NCC-1227 is the larger size, almost 8 inches from the front to the back, All the ships in this collection are in this larger scale, made of die-cast metal and ABS materials, and hand-painted, with reference to the actual CG models used in production. The paint jobs on these are just phenomenal. You and I have both seen them, and they are gorgeous. Each ship also comes with a display base, Hala, and a collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of technology on board. 
The first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping at eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Additional models, including the iconic USS Discovery NCC-1031, the Corella NCC-1255, and the reimagined Klingon Bird of Prey, will then ship monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, and those also fly in with free shipping. Subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100 and may cancel their subscriptions at any time. Full details can be found at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Fans who'd like to purchase their favorite ships individually may do so either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or at their local comic book shop for the regular price of $54.95 each. But again, to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Okay. Mm-hmm. Episode 7 of Deep Space Nine, and twice already the computer has been confounded by somebody taking off their communicator. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about tracking in the 24th century. See, here's the thing. I'm really impressed with the IT in this episode, with the security in this episode, and we're going to talk about some of that. Well, I mentioned earlier, we talked about some of it, and we'll talk about more as we go. Yeah. It seems to me at some point in writing TNG and then going into Deep Space Nine, somebody in the writer's room must have said, wouldn't it just, you know, be easier to like implant a tracker into people or, you know, wouldn't the computer be able to track everybody without the communicator? Mm -hmm. I, I guess I guess what I'm wondering is, do you think this was a conscious effort on the part of the writers to say surveillance states are not the way to go? This is not the way Starfleet. This is not the way the Federation. This is not the way the best of the best would go. Or is it just, you know, a convenient plot device from week to week? Yeah, I, I find myself asking that same question. Um, you know, if you go on a passenger ship today or on a military ship today, particularly when you get towards sensitive areas like, say, a hatch that one could go in and out of, or in this case on Deep Space Nine, uh, uh, an an airlock Mm -hmm. out to a docking bay, you'd have a security camera. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you'd have certain certain areas, not every place, but certain areas that you would want to keep under pretty tight watch. And they keep talking about deploying security to places. I'm thinking you also talk about deploying 25 webcams Mm. They can run and uh, and show me what's happening there. But well, we do know they have cameras really quickly because remember the guys from last week, um, Tandro and his people were able mm-hmm. to evade the cameras in uh, whatever that episode was called. Dax. I'm sorry, that episode was <laughs> yes. Dax. They were able to evade the cameras and that's how they knew, hey, these guys really know something because normally we'd be able to flip on the cameras and just see them walking by. So, I mean, I don't yeah. think yeah. I don't think security cameras are against well, of course, the ship was actually owned by the Cardassians, or Deep Space Nine was actually built by the Cardassians, so maybe they're just yeah. keeping the cameras because the cameras were already there. Certainly, we didn't have many cameras on uh, on the Enterprise, or the 171D. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry to... Sorry yeah, to... but, but, but that, that's part of the thing. I mean, in this episode, you have uh, uh, the possessed Bashir going to the Rio Grande. You have Cork showing up with his three mercenaries, and everybody's like, "Wow, I wonder where's where's Doctor Bashir, and why is there activity happening on this ship? Can we roll the tape back? <laughs> we just see who who went there, you know." So it, there is some breakdown, at least in that kind of uh, visual 
recon. But yes, uh, the, the communicator. The, this is a troubling thing. I, I, I get where the communicator pin is something that is obviously extremely useful for communication, mm-hmm. is extremely useful as a way for the computer to track somebody for transport. Because it, when you say lock on to somebody, yes, okay, I'm going specifically to that thing, hopefully attached to that person. But you also have things like tricorders, which are able to scan an area for a person. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they work very well with living beings, so I'm told, you know. And presumably, a ship computer or a station-wide computer would have sensors that could do kind of the same thing. So, whether or not you have that pin on you for communications and for maybe improving the lock that a transporter can get on you, it does seem like there are ways that the computer could find you no matter what. Um and were the writers concerned about that being a bad thing? I honestly don't think so. I honestly think that this is a a way to work in the plot that they want to work. Um, I get. Well, hang but, on though. I guess the one I'm asking about specifically is implanting a tracker. I mean, because we're talking about doing that now. There are workplaces actually uh, that have experimented with the idea of, oh, you put your ID chip in you know the person's hand, and that way they never lose their chip, and we always know exactly who came in and went out. Yeah. So I mean, I under, I mean, I even get the reason to have something like the communicator that would also act as a lock on to thing because remember the episode uh, in NQ less when that thing was about to explode on Deep Space Nine, Cisco took off his communicator, put it on the thing, and said, "Yeah, beam, beam my communicator and whatever it's attached to out in the, yeah, you know, the right. deepest, darkest parts of space." But I mean, right. that could be a se- separate thing that rides or rides along. I mean, I, what yeah, I'm saying yeah. is, I mean, today we can track people. I mean, if if you're willing to have something implanted in you, then we're able to keep track of you, right? Yep. Would yep. they have, would the writers or would somebody somewhere along the way, was it in the TNG Bible, was it someplace where they said, yeah, listen, this is not a thing that Starfleet would do. This is not a thing that anybody would be willing to do. Yeah. Or, I mean, are they making a statement about the fact that we can't just, you know, well, you know, call up his transponder because he had it put in when he was nine or nine months or nine days or whatever. I, I don't think it's that I don't think it's that premeditated. I really don't, because, you know, we've always seen the communicator as the thing going back to the TOS days to say this is how the transporter finds you. Although in a pinch, the computer and, and a guy looking into a blue lighted uh, computer station can pinpoint say, oh, yeah, there's people there. Let's grab them. Now, here's the thing, though. If it's the 24th century and I am stationed on a Cardassian space station way out in the middle of nowhere, um, and there's the potential that I will need to be rescued from anywhere, um, and part of what is between me either being lost in space somewhere or being transported back to safety. If what's in between is me getting a transponder implanted or not, I'm going with the transponder. Oh. Because somebody could take that pin off of me <sighs> and and I would not know it. I would want to be found. Yes. Oh, see, I know Ben Franklin didn't actually say it, but I'm going to throw the Ben Franklin quote at you, the one that Ben Franklin never actually said. 
people who give up, <laughs> you know, what is it? People who give up uh, privacy for security uh, will have neither or deserve, deserve neither. neither. Yeah. yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. bother actually learning the quote because I've heard too many times now that it wasn't actually Ben Franklin, but it's still an interesting point. Yeah, and it's been beat up entirely too many times. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if you say, yeah. oh, yeah, I would absolutely do that. Okay, well, then what happens when the Gzinti or somebody, you know, end up taking over the Federation <laughs> and now they know exactly where to find you and can blow you up from the comfort of their own home? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it might be a, a risk that I'll have to face someday. See, I would rather... If I'm to be blasted into space. I would love it if somebody would actually... I mean, if I could find something that addresses this. The problem is then I would actually have to start looking. But, I mean, <laughs> there there are two issues here. Either this is... Starfleet has made a statement about this is not how we do things. Basically allowing people the freedom to be free. Allowing mm-hmm. people the freedom to take off their communicator and go down to Quarks for a drink and not be discovered, right? Because they just want to mm-hmm. get away for 30 minutes. I would rather think that's what it is because otherwise, honestly, I think there's a lot going on in this episode, like as far as uh, security and technology and IT. And if nobody thought, why don't we just put one under their skin? Then that's just, that just feels like that feels like a lack of imagination. I would rather them say, oh, yeah, we thought about that. But you know what? That's really not the way humanity should go. Because uh, speaking as a human, I'd really like that to not be the way humanity goes. <laughs> now, I, look, honestly, I think that if this were any other episode and we absolutely had to beam Dr. Bashir back without that pin on him, um, it would take 10 more seconds of computer work to say, hey, uh, look at that ship and find anything there that's a human and beam it back. And while you're at it, look for the human that's about oh, uh, six feet tall, slender, 29 years old, and speaks with an accent. Yeah, but at that time, they didn't know where he was. And that's what it goes back to. I mean, is there actually a failsafe mm-hmm. written mm-hmm. in the computer where you can't find somebody? Because we've been left with the power to walk away. Yeah, somehow I doubt it. Somehow I doubt it. Yeah, get yeah. somebody on the phone. Do we know anybody who knows anybody? <laughs> Maybe we could do that. Because that's about as much research as I want to do. Hey, have you? No, really? Okay, well. No. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe, but okay. Hey, uh, at the start of this show, Kajada is saying to Bashir, don't go in there. He's dangerous. He started the fire. He's a prisoner, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Bashir goes in there and sets this whole thing in motion. Mm -hmm. I know he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, And I know he's supposed to heal. And uh, Gates McFadden said something very interesting along these lines about the mission of Starfleet and the mission of the Doctor always being at, at odds. Starfleet's prime directive is do not interfere. The Doctor's prime directive is do no harm and heal, you know, or, or by inaction, do not allow harm to come. Um, was Bashir wrong or right here? And is it simply a matter of bad timing? Uh, he was right. I mean, he did exactly what he had to do. The prime directive doesn't uh, doesn't come into play here because they're on a ship capable of warp or would be capable of warp if it weren't breaking down. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, he did exactly what he had to do. Yeah, I, I wonder, though, if he I, I, I agree with you. I, I totally because I tried to put it into a real world scenario. A, a, a paramedic shows up a scene where a police officer and a criminal are both in danger. What does the paramedic do? The paramedic helps both. Because mm-hmm. that's what the paramedic is supposed to do. I I wondered though if Bashir or Akira should have listened a little more and figured out a way to, to take a precaution. You know, as she's saying, he's a criminal. Don't go in there. He's dangerous. Uh, how dangerous? What should I do? <laughs> you know, how should they be treated? 
Mm. Um, can we put a confinement beam on them and beam them over somewhere where we can take care of them later? You know, look, I get it. I get it's the setup of the show. I get it's the drama of the moment. Um, but I, I did wonder that at least because he seems to not listen to her at all. Of course, she is. She is delirious. She lives in bad shape. Well, and she's also somebody who's got, I mean, yes, she's got a prisoner who she's keeping imprisoned, but I mean, he is also uh, theoretically ostensibly under her care, right? And if she's ignoring the care part, then of course he's going to override that because the guy's going to die, which as you pointed out, that is his prime directive is to, uh, Mm -hmm. is to not let that happen. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about that Quark and Odo conversation. Quark says, it's good to want things. Odo says, even things you can't have. And Quark says, especially things I can't have. You know, I I, I don't know too much of what to make of that. But, um, you know, is Quark saying greed is good? Well, I I think Quark would say that greed is good. But I, I do wonder how much he's needling Odo here. Because remember, Odo is the guy who just a few episodes ago had to had to take a moment and think about the idea of a, a latinum bucket to rest in at some point. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, that's, it's honestly almost a, a James Kirk kind of philosophy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, to want the things that you don't have or to want the things that you can't have, because that'll always keep you motivated. That'll always keep you driving. That'll keep you going. You know, if you, yeah. if you get enough stuff or enough, you know, if you get enough, just peace of mind, you're like, Hey, I'm good. <laughs> then you know then Kirk's going to come over and steal half your stuff because no you're not you need to be working for more stuff or more things or more peace of mind or whatever you take it to the bad extreme though and you you end up with a Vantica yes well at, the, you know? at that point you've gone too far at that point you're you're less Kirk you're more Gorgon yeah yeah there you go and I, I do hope that Vantica didn't stop to think too long about carrying around a copy of his own brain scan and then injecting it into a host, then letting his original brain die, and whether or not the copy of Electronic Pulses would actually be him on the other end. Oh, I was going to ask you that question. Were you? Okay. Yeah, I know, and that's surprising, because it's totally not the kind of question that would completely turn me on. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was also weird to me, though, like, Dax is just talking about it, like, well, there's your trouble. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is like data level stuff. This is higher than data level. And everybody always looks at data like, you know, he came down from some magic mountain or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it sort of goes back to the questions we were asking. Well, that we've asked forever about replicators and replicated food and transporters. No, you know, pretty much the stuff that we've talked about. Dr. Roger Corby hasn't gotten a name check on this show in a while. Was that Dr. Corby or was that just Corby bot? And were they the same thing? I mean, just because, you know, Kirk was able to short circuit him doesn't mean that he wasn't in a lot of ways, Corby. I don't know. Do you, I mean, like, do you think he, was Vantica there? Oh, well, that's hilarious because as you said that we don't read each other's notes. Mm-hmm. My, my note was that, you know, I, I, I could make a joke about Vantica and what he could do with Bashir's body, which is in my mind, just keep living with it. Yeah. Uh, because at that point he's in a human body. He doesn't need the deridium. Uh, he's fine. And he could just quit Starfleet and go start a new life, and that would be great. And he's Vantica doing something else. Um, but I wondered a couple of things. I wondered if the, the Kobliad were dying unnaturally young, 
or if they were just greedy about living longer. Because, hmm. I mean, at that point, they could just pull a, and I name-checked him, Dr. Roger Corby, or oh. pull a Sargon. Oh. But, but Vantica has the tech to move a consciousness from one place to another, as long as we don't get mired in the whole question about whether or not it's him. So, he's set. <laughs> you, don't think he, you don't think he tried it before he did it? Well, apparently been working on it a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we don't really know. Maybe it's like a monkey or a sailot or something. You don't think he tried it with something? like Could be. Or a guy. Like, well, yeah. maybe, he has, maybe he has a manservant. Maybe he has a valet. Sure, sure. Or could. a valet, depending on where you're from. He could have a yes. valet and say, hey, come here for a second, and then like jump into that guy's brain. And then while that guy's like, trying to give him CPR, because he doesn't even know, then Vantica jumps back. And he's like, oh, cool, that worked. But I love my valet. I don't want to. I don't want to do this to him. Let me find some stooge on some space station, deep in space, some deep space station, let's say. Not not even the first one you'd run across? No. Or maybe even the first eight you'd run across? No, they would Just suspect that. No, go almost to 10 and stop there. Yeah. So then Kajata destroys that little coaster with Mantica's consciousness on it. And we and here's the thing. I, I watched that scene over and over again because I kept trying to get the reaction out of Cisco, Dax, and Bashir, who was standing there. Cisco looks a little shocked. I was going to say duly horrified, but okay. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't quite make out the reactions on Dax's and Bashir's faces. Oh, because I was going to ask you about those two. What about them? They almost seem like smiles. They seem like they, they were trying to stifle smiles, which for Julian... Bingo. For Julian, yeah. I get it, because Julian has now been taken over by this thing and caused to do horrible things, although he says he doesn't remember any of it. And good thing, too, because as we know, uh, Tondro could come back and, you know, accuse him of something if he remembers it, whether he had any <laughs> right. power over it or not. But Julian, right. while Julian knows that his body was taken over, he has no memory of any of that happening, and yet both he and, surprisingly, Dax, Dax, who you would think would understand, like, you know, going from one body to another to, like, something else... Yeah, uh, they both they both seem to be stifling smiles at the fact that Vantica just uh, just um, just ended this life. Uh, she basically was judge dread. She was judge jury and executioner and and pulled it off right there in front of them. Yeah. And that's why I watched that over and because I kept looking at the first time I saw it I was like, wait, it, was there a grin there? Was there a smile? Was there mm -hmm. a little bit of happiness at that? And watch it again. Like, OK, can we justify that? No, I didn't really see that. But then I, I, yeah, I didn't fully know how to respond to their reaction. And that's the thing. It feels like, I mean, they did feel like smiles to me. They felt like yeah, smiles. And, yeah. and honestly, the only thing that we should have gotten off of three senior Starfleet officers, and I know it's not a Starfleet ship, but they are all wearing Starfleet colors. I mean, the only thing we should have gotten off of that is maybe shock, maybe horror, at at the at the very the least reaction we should have gotten was sort of looking uncomfortable and maybe walking slowly away. Mm -hmm. And instead, yeah. I'm at the end going, did I mean did that? It's almost like they were like they didn't want to show glee in a way. Yeah, which yeah. um which is which is not very Starfleet. <laughs> With Vantica dead, then alive again, then really, really dead. It is time to see what we can take 
from the passenger. The Ballad of Vantica comes to an end. Riding around in Bashir's head, riding around in all that empty space in Bashir's head. You know, Bashir only uses like uh, one one hundredth of his brain power, John. Mm. Such a shame. Like all, like all humans do. Yeah. 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 Riding around in Bashir's head like a big old passenger there. But uh, yeah, this was his stop. He's out now, and uh, it's time for us to decide what we can take uh, from uh, from from his time in Bashir's head and the whole story that was uh, the passenger. Um, curious, John, uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to come down on the side of no here. And it really goes back to the end of the discussion that we were just having in the last segment. Um, I think a big part of what I dislike about this episode is that none of our characters really learn anything and therefore neither do we. So there's an intriguing idea about a criminal consciousness stored in a computer and then it gets incinerated, no discussion. Um, we had a much more intriguing version of that with Moriarty. Mm. Oh, cool. Ship in a bottle. We're going to keep him in a box. And uh, maybe we'll learn to regret that decision one day or <laughs> figure out if we did the right thing by doing that. Um, I, I know it's technically not our problem. Yeah, the, this this is not Starfleet's jurisdiction. I get that 100%. But it just felt weird to end this way. Hmm. Um, there was also, just as far as like a, a, a storytelling device, there, there was no tension for me about who was possessed. Uh, even when the shadowy figure grabs Quark, I was like, oh, it's Bashir. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, j- just as the, the construction of the episode, um, I, I wasn't really sucked in by that. Now, I I will say that they did a good job of letting the other characters get carried away with their own suspicions of each other. I I actually liked that part. I I like the tension between uh, Sisko and Odo. Not that there is suspicion there, but just they're they're bumping heads. Uh, All the stuff with Primen. Say what you will about Primen, but, but I thought having that in the mix, so then Kira makes Odo suspicious, then Odo is suspicious of him again. Um, nobody quite knows what to make of Kajada. Like all of this stuff, I, I thought within the story that all worked pretty well, but just the mechanics of the story didn't for me. Hmm. So at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really hold up for me. And I thought what would be the really interesting points here just weren't explored. Um, On the Trek Files, which is another podcast here on the Roddenberry Podcast Network, uh, recently uh, Larry and Dave Rossi covered uh, a fan letter that was this very long 18-page thing written to Gene Roddenberry about the problems with Next Gen. And the person who wrote that was not entirely wrong about the things that he was pointing out. It was just a very long letter and a very passionate letter. One of the things that he pointed out is he said, next gen falls into this trap of doing puzzle episodes where it's just the puzzle of the week. We got to figure it out. And then when we figure it out at the end, we get to move on. This episode felt like that to me where it's just the puzzle of the week. Oh, well we got to figure out who's got the criminal consciousness and then we got to stop it. And then we got to pull it out 
And it's just a matter of counting down the clock until we well, got one minute to go. Well, Dax better figure out how to send the e-impulse. So that's what it felt like to me was marking time for those beats to get to the resolution. And, and I had hoped that there would be something in that resolution that would make me by way of the characters say, Oh, did, did they really do the right thing here? But we weren't even really given that chance because Kajada just <laughs> zaps the coaster and she's on her way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, it's a bit of a misfire for me, even though I think that there are things that are done very well in this episode. Um, but it, it's not one that I would jump into again. How about you? Well, it's, I mean, it's fine is what I would say. I mean, what's weird is you talk about the fact that, you know, all, all next gen is, is that, you know, puzzle of the week. Well, see also TOS, see also TAS, see also Columbo, <laughs> see also heart to heart, see also TV. I mean, up until a yeah, certain yeah. point, up until maybe what? Wild Palms or Twin Peaks. I mean, up until those kinds of shows, those kinds of like, you know, where you, you get to the end of it, you're like, what did I just watch? I mean, otherwise, that's what TV is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of slow, but honestly, I like the misdirects. I mean, I, you know, I knew the whole time that Bashir was a possibility, but Kajada seemed as likely because, first of all, she was on the ship with Vantica the whole time. And second, she passed out the second he died. So that was mm -hmm. one of the first misdirects that we got. It's like, oh, well, wow, Bashir touched him. So it must have been him. But then if you think back to it, it's like, okay, well, she also fell over at the same time. And then, of course, um, Kira was in there as well, although she never figures in as a possibility. But Kajada was definitely a possibility. And Bashir was a possibility. And then Premen was a possibility because who the heck's this guy like he comes out of nowhere and then all of a sudden he's like oh i need to be like right in the middle of all the security stuff i need to know what's going on and why you're talking to that guy and what's going on here and i need to be like in the thick of this and he shows up in act one with nary an introduction so i mean to me i wasn't sure who it was up until up until we i mean i think i knew it was bashir before we saw bashir but not much earlier than that um, mm -hmm. I believed it was different people at different times during the episode, which almost never happens in DS9 or uh, which almost never happens in the DS9 TNG era of Star Trek, I should say. It never happened on TOS. You always knew who the bad yeah. guy was and we were just watching other people be confused about it. I was actually curious who was going to be in this one. I think one of the reasons I really like this episode is because it hits so much stuff that interests me right now. As long as you're mentioning other podcasts, I do. Um, I've talked about Mac OS Ken here before, but currently I am producing another security podcast. I say currently because I don't know how long I'll be producing it and I don't know how many <laughs> years from now people will be listening to this. But I do one that's all about information, technology, security kind of stuff. Uh, nothing about which I know, but something about which I'm learning more as I do this podcast with these other two people who actually do know about it. I love the way Vantica accessed the computer system by going through a join system. Uh, specifically environmental controls. There was a hack uh, like two or three years ago. I want to say it was, well, I don't want to say it was the wrong one. So I will say it was a major retailer. I think I know which one it was, but I'm not going to say. The bad guys went through the heating system controls. That's what they did. Hmm. Now, they did something similar on an episode of Mr. Robot, but it was very different because in Mr. Robot, they didn't actually access the computer controls. They just melted the computers by heating the place up too much, right? <laughs> so it's different in that respect. But still, they're accessing computer systems uh, that they shouldn't be able to access. And I love that, that in the mid-90s, they were hip to an idea you know, that's still screwing up security today. 
And then there is the whole question that I personally found in it. Maybe it's because my IT you know senses were uh, turned up because of the shunt that you know got from one computer system to another. But then there is the question about the tracker, and then there is the ridiculousness of the computer going, "Oh, his password one two three four. Yes, it was his password one two three four. It was actually four one two one. Don't forget that if you ever need to steal right? a ship, yeah, okay? Never. Because that probably still works. Because I feel certain, he, and he's probably using that same password for everything. You know, that just seems like such a Bashir thing to do. Yeah, that that'll easily be a <laughs> trivia question uh, at uh, STLV or somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's my other tattoo. Is what that's going to mm-hmm. be. So I'll get yeah, I'll get that one. I won't get the I won't get the rest of the trivia questions because you know me. I I sleep through trivia, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So you say that you don't think anybody learned anything. I think people did learn things, but they're actually one of the messages that I found. So I'm going to ask you, since that's what I do, what messages did you find here, sir, if any? Yeah, I I mean, I I think it's not really a message here because I feel like the episode doesn't care. But uh, how many times have we seen a don't mess with Mother Nature message in Star Trek in the form, particularly in uh, uh, life prolongation disasters, yeah. going back to TOS. Uh, certainly that that is something that is uh, front and center. <laughs> going back to uh-huh. Miri, which is the first time we said, you know, they should attach that communicator. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That yeah. was that episode. So, yeah. Yeah. So that that is a theme here. Um I also feel like there is a thing about working together. Uh, I, I do like what happens, but it, it, Cisco, I think, does an effective job uh, with managing Odo and uh, Primen. Um, uh, Odo does stand to learn something from Primen, which he does. Uh, he learns to loosen up a little bit and accept somebody else's uh, uh, methods. So I think that's valuable here. But I don't feel like this is a message episode. I feel like that message in particular just happens because we've got good character work going on in an otherwise okay episode. So those are two that I can come away with. Uh, uh, How about you? Well, how do you say that? But then you just said less than five minutes ago that nobody learned anything in this episode. Because that was one of the big messages that I took away from it. I mean, Primen comes in in assuming that he knows everything about everything. Uh, yep. And Odo is very much trying to, you know, stake his claim and make sure that, you know, the feds stay out of his local, you know, whatever. Right. Yep. And they both learn from each other because Primen actually Primen ends up solving the whole thing. But how does he end up solving the whole thing by watching what Odo did, by listening to what Odo said, and then by figuring out, OK, well, if that worked that time for this bad guy or almost worked that time for this bad guy, maybe it would work here as well. And so then he goes off and finds the real thing. And all of that comes from, even though it was prickly, all that comes from working together, paying attention and learning new ways to do the thing, because rather than worrying about, you know, whose lane you're in, whose job this is, who's going to get the credit, they're both working towards the same goal. And they have to get past their stuff and realize they're both working towards the same goal. And when they do, they both learn from each other and they both save the day. I I feel like they almost backed into that good stuff by accident. I feel like I feel like that, you know, you have three writer credits on this episode, Robert Hewitt Wolf, uh, Morgan Gendel and Michael Piller. And uh, we we talked about Piller's famous pillar filler uh, from his days on TNG about how he could come in and they just they need to stretch for time a little bit uh, because there's not enough plot to fill the plot. But he would create something that was a great character moment. 
and and I may be totally wrong about what the dynamic was of creating the script, but I feel like that really good stuff with Primen and Quark, and particularly with uh, uh, Cisco and Primen, Cisco and Quark, that was all the stuff that kind of got fleshed out because I feel like the plot in this was so weak. Uh, but yes, that that is a valuable thing in this episode. It, it it truly is. I just feel like it wasn't the front and center thing in this episode. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Roddenberry has a lot of podcasts that they do. Oh, yes, they do. And by they, I mean we. And by a lot, I mean a lot. Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Track Files. The place to find them all podcast.roddenberry.com If you would like to help support Mission Log directly, gosh, that'd be swell. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM, that is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com Next week, move along home. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. No passengers were harmed in the making of this episode. Well, except for that one guy, you know, the passenger. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.